Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. You're listening to SNS Online with part two of today's extended interview with film TV director Waris Hussein. Shoulder to shoulder. Now that's an interesting experience because Verity Lambert and a group of women, that was Georgia Brown and Midge McKenzie, got together and said it's about time we did something about the women's movement and uh, Mrs. Pankhurst. And it was going to be an all women thing production. Uh, yeah. Uh, and um, they were going. They were choosing women directors, and they, you know, Moira Armstrong was one of them, of course. However, Verity, in her wisdom, said, look, we cannot make this into, we're sort of almost ghettoizing ourselves by having no male involvement, uh, apart from the fact that they had to resort to male writers. Yes. And um, she said, if we've got a male writer, well, we should have a male director. And one of the uh, ladies objected very strongly to that. Um, and if it wasn't for Verity, I wouldn't have got it. She fought for me, got me the job. I was in the States at that time, hiding from a disaster, uh, which we haven't discussed, um, <laughs> uh, production with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Their first, their first excursion into the world of television, and it was a disaster for many, many reasons, which I could talk about for hours. But is that, is, that a, is that a separate book then? <laughs> That's a separate book. But I, I was hiding and Verity found me. I was staying with friends and I don't know how she found me. And she said, what are you doing, Morris? I said, I'm hiding. And she said, well, stop hiding. Come back here. Um, I've got a series for you. And thank God, because she was my salvation. Because, you know, in America, if you have a failure, God forbid, the phone stops ringing and will not start again. If you're unless you're very lucky, so in my case, the phone rang from England, and I came back to direct uh, a series about Mrs. Pankhurst and the whole suffragette movement, of which I had no knowledge at all. I had to educate myself very clearly and quickly about who everybody was. Touchwood, my abilities to do that were because of my studying at Cambridge, I guess, you know, fast study. I managed to get through a lot of information and the scripts themselves were excellent. You know how men hate any sort of a scene, especially where women are concerned? Well, now imagine if some of us went to a political meeting and started an interruption. No, wait. The men would be amazed, but they'd have to listen. We're going to make them listen to us. Young women do today. They're not afraid of anything. And we older ones are going to have to learn to speak up to and shout if necessary. Then the casting, of course, Sean Phillips playing uh, Emmeline Pankhurst was an absolutely inspired bit of casting. She's fabulous. She, apart from being a taller version of the real person, because Emmeline was actually quite small. 
but physically and uh, the way Sean played it was just wonderful. To do all that we can, to be all that is finest in us, to suffer all that we must in the struggle which lies ahead. For the women of England are awake at last. They are prepared to do something which women have never done before. Fight for themselves. We have always fought for men and for our children. Now, we are prepared to fight for our own human rights and freedom. I did have to put up with a lot of heat from a certain producer. <laughs> <laughs> lady producer. Uh, but Georgia Brown was one of them, and she actually played Annie Kenny, uh, again, against type, because Georgia was very uh, dark. And uh, we tried, to, because Annie was known for being very fair, and she had these blue eyes. She started shooting the exteriors, which we always did before we went in the studio, with blue contact lenses. And after three days on location, just couldn't deal with them so we decided to go ahead without the contact lenses so if anybody's watching continuity <laughs> yes absolutely blue-eyed annie kenny and then not so in the studio but that was one of the many things that happened on that production i'm very proud of it brought me to a different world, uh, very, very English-based. I mean, no sign of anything that I could identify with. But you see, this is what I pride myself in. I've been able to overcome the idea of being categorized because of background or ethnicity. I'm able to be as flexible as possible, which took me to America, where, of course, I had to adjust to the American psyche where it's a whole different way of thinking, by the way. It's not an easy transit. And everyone who thinks it does work, it, it isn't the same. Although those of us who've gone over there have discovered this on our own way. But uh, this ab ability to uh, cope is what I learned. You really are going. You'll go without me, leave me here. You've been trying to get away from me for a long time. Now this is your big opportunity. No, I haven't. How can you say that? Maybe you want to believe that, but it isn't true. Can we just um just briefly ask yeah. about the film with um with, with oh, uh, Burton and Taylor? <laughs> the Burtons came at the same time, by the way. This was in the early 70s. Uh it was sandwiched between two very good things I'd done at the BBC. So uh, uh, the reason I was chosen to do the Burton uh, was that originally it was going to be done as a television drama in two parts, written by John Hopkins, who was a very prominent writer. And it was all highly respectable. And it was going to be Richard Burton's uh, participation in uh, his... Uh, he used to be with uh, Welsh television and he was a part of that uh, group and because of that uh, he felt he owed them something in terms of being a part of the Welsh tradition so 
John Hopkins wrote the screenplay. They were looking for a director who knew how to cope with four cameras at a time because our dramas were always shot continuously. They weren't shot one-off cameras as they are today. Everything was plotted, planned and shot, uh, rehearsed and shot. It took whatever time it took. In this case, we were going to take much longer because neither Richard Burton nor Elizabeth Taylor had done that kind of television before. So we were preparing, we were emptying out all the studios um, in um, uh, Bristol, that is where they were based. Uh, we also emptied out a whole set of hotels in Bath for the Burton Taylor entourage. <laughs> and it was going to be four camera drama. Well, nobody had discussed this with either of the two pr uh, protagonists, principals. Elizabeth had never, ever been shot continuously with four cameras. Oh, yes. I don't think she realized this at the time, but what really scuppered the whole. Uh, production was when we heard that she couldn't possibly stay in England longer because of tax reasons. Oh. We would have to leave any idea of working in Britain because her dates didn't work out. This was found out rather late by her agents and her accountants. The story was that everything to do with her, she moored her yacht in the Thames, which allowed her to be someone who didn't have to tread on a step into British soil as uh, you do for tax reasons. Anyway, <laughs> it was decided the whole thing would move to they got a co-production deal with Italy and Germany and suddenly it became a film. So I was now going to direct a two part feature film, not a TV show in the space of two weeks. Gosh. So you can imagine the change and then the dramas that followed. Um, I now realize that we could never have shot on four cameras because to light Elizabeth alone took a very long time when you're a diva of her uh, weight and I'm saying, I was going to say weight because that fluctuated as well. It reminds me of um, a, a, a story Michael Cashman told me for his interview when he asked Elizabeth Taylor if he could have a photograph with her and uh, they had to put all the lights because she, she said, yeah, that's... I nice. heard that one. <laughs> yes, they, they put all the lights on and God knows how much that cost. <laughs> well, at least Michael was privileged enough to have a photo with her. Mm, yes. I was so scared, I never asked. <laughs> the person I got on very well with was Richard. He was lovely. Okay. But he did take to the bottle very easily. However, I have a photograph that's an iconic right now where I'm, he's got a cigarette dangling out of his mouth and I'm doing his tie-up for him. A oh, very how... intimate photograph. Wonderful. I mean, if you ever do your memoir, that's got to be in there. Oh, yes. <laughs> a few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. And now that I have been succeeded by my brother, the Duke of York. My first words must be to declare my allegiance to him. This I do with all my heart. I've danced with a man who's danced with a girl who's danced with the Prince of Wales. It was simply grand, he said, talking band. And she said, delightful, sir. Prince of Wales.
with a Mrs. Simpson, another award winner, and it was a veritable who's who of the cream of the acting profession at the time, Peggy Ashcroft, Morris Denham, Nigel Hawthorne, Sherry Lungy, uh, the list goes on. Uh, that must have been a, yeah. an incredible experience. Tell us about it. Edward, Edward Fox. Yes, of course. Eminent Edward Fox. Well, again, you see, this is my reward <laughs> from Verity for having done uh, the Suffragette show. Because I have to tell you, halfway through the uh, Suffragette drama, Andrew Brown, who was producing um, it, had asked me to do um, to interrupt it because he was about to do a show called Jenny, about Jenny Churchill. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually met with Lee Remick, who's going to play it. And it was all, Verity then called me and said, look, I know I have no reason to ask you to, to give up ours to do something as important as Jenny, but would you consider staying with us and not leaving us? Mm-hmm. Because it would mean uh, my having to find somebody else and you've set the tone. And so I decided to stay with the suffragettes and not go over to Jenny, which of course was done by somebody else. And um, But I always thought that as a kind of thank you, although apart from another reason for my having worked with her in the past, she was the one to choose me with Andrew Brown, who forgave me, by the way, for not doing Jenny. Uh, I did that with Mrs. Simpson. Mm. And God knows that was the best thing that could have happened for me because, again, here's a situation where I'm doing a drama about the Queen's uncle and the reason she's there on the throne right now because of his departure and the politics and the internal situation that went on with it was this a nation this was debunking the love story element it was about was a nation betrayed Mm. it was a political uh, examination as well as a personal one so you know for me that was a wonderful breakthrough and of course now with today with the crown being shown yes uh, with huge budgets you know uh, the money that's being thrown at this very eminent show on they, they can do it but we don't forget how to do it with the, uh, the resources that we had available to us and if you actually look at the show considering what the circumstances were it, it were that it stands up very well Going. Been no chance to talk to my father. Jubilee, Harry's wedding, and now the holiday season. That'll be over soon. What have you planned to tell him? I have an overwhelming need of you. I wish to bring you permanently into my life. He can't argue with your sincerity. No. He can't overrule love. My father can overrule anything in the name of what he calls duty. David, you say you have an overwhelming need of me in a desire to bring me permanently into your life? And I mean it. You know I mean it. Are you prepared to say so to your father? Yes. But I... I rather dread doing it. So for me, it was an incredible adventure. It took a year to plot and plan uh, before we actually went before the cameras. Again, shooting exteriors on location and interiors on four cameras continuously in the studio at Thames Studio in Teddington. So we didn't have the kind of facilities that people have today. You know, we had to make do with what we had. And if you look at that series right now, 
very tough to realize the difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we were lucky to find, we actually were able to film the exteriors in certain places that we had access to, which now, you know, we'd have to do with CGI or whatever. Absolutely. And of course, um, it won the Emmy for Outstanding uh, Series, a BAFTA Awards as well, a number of BAFTA Awards. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it won I, me a BAFTA Award. Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but but uh, the Duchess of Windsor, apparently she found the series to be a gross invasion of her privacy. So I, so I read um, in, uh, in Wikipedia. What, what do you say the to Duchess that? The Duchess was alive. She was alive at the time. And she was um, not well. She was actually not at all well. She was possibly dying at the time. She had a very fearsome lawyer called Mate Bloom, a woman, who threatened to sue us if we so much as depicted any physical contact between her and uh, the king. Yeah. Uh, so we had to be very, well, it was a ridiculous premise because we all knew what was going on. The office, I mean, they all went off on a cruise for heaven's sake. In the, in the drama and in the history. So don't tell me were they in separate cabins. <laughs> and so we, we had to deal with this in a very careful way. And I managed to do it in one sequence where we see them dancing on deck on the yacht. And um, uh, I wasn't allowed to show them kissing, but they were dancing very close and I was able to do that legally because lawyers were standing by. <laughs> and. Um, uh, we started off on a pair of shoes that had been taken off. Well, for a woman to take off her shoes in those days was symbolic. And anyway, <laughs> I start off on the shoes and I then went across to see them dancing in the, in, the, in the moonlight. And then the camera pans down to two silhouettes merging. That was my very subtle, I might add. It's like panning to the, to the uh, fireplace, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Yes, it's yeah, the equivalent of to, to the fireplace. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're listening to SNS Online with today's special guest, Waris Hussein. Well, back in 1971, one of Warris's early feature films, a coming-of-age teen drama called Melody, was released, written by Alan Parker and starring Oliver's Mark Lester and Jack Wilde, as well as newcomer Tracy Hyde and a cast of 300 other children. A behind-the-scenes featurette was also made at the time that lifted the lid on the production and featured Warris. A street in Battersea was one of several London locations used last summer for a new film directed by Warris Hussein, about the mixture of anarchy and love that is a part of every child. The film, which is soon to have its world premiere, is called Melody, and in the cast are 300 children, many of them under 16. You two are trying desperately to keep in step, but you can't because you don't walk. Peter home. and William. So, so, no, no, don't overdo it, Ash. You know, it's just little bits of uh, tra- skipping. I mean, you know, everyone else is going left and you're going right, so you're sort of uh, okay. Uh, I've never really directed uh, children in bulk until now. I mean, I've been coping on this one with about 300. I think the main thing about dealing with children anyway is that uh, uh, one shouldn't be at all either condescending or dominating because basically they don't allow you to dominate. Uh, They're very much uh, law unto themselves and they kind of um, impose on you the pattern of 
their way of working. The director, he helps me by telling me what to do and how to do it. And um, he tells me exactly what he wants. And if I do get it wrong, he doesn't blow his top like some of them. She's very open. She allows herself to absorb a great deal of what she is fed with. I mean, I feed her with ideas. I don't have to uh, tell her how to lift a hand or take a look or, or, or move, because basically that's an instinctive thing in her. I mean, we saw this when we were auditioning. We auditioned a great number of girls, and it's not very easy for a child of 11. But uh, she has an extraordinary kind of reserve and a sort of inner strength, um, which I find uh, I can draw on. I think acting in any case is instinctive. You either have it in you to be a performer or not, and uh, she has it, you know. Come to the pictures for this one. Enjoy again the two young stars from Oliver. Do you like to dance? Oh, yeah. Come on, do you want a bloody dance? Remember the years between growing and knowing? I always thought kissing would bring babies. <laughs> yes, I see you when you walk down the street. No matter what your age group, this is your class. The comprehensive education that bridges the gap between the generations. You don't know what it's like. Baby, you don't know what it's like. To love somebody, to love somebody the way I love you. Your queen salutes you, O Solomon. You are dark, madam. Scorched by the hot sun, sir. You know my meaning. What an extravagant, madam, to treat a cardinal in such a fashion. I am queen of a wild land, sir, and I may do as I please in it. Take care, madam. It was but a mask, sir, like any other. I think not. It lacked respect. You have often blacked your face and wielded a sword in dumb show. Enough. Let's talk about Henry VIII and his six wives, um, which was originally a BBC drama. It was a, a six-part thing, I think, something like that, six, six wives. Was that more or less an adaptation of the BBC drama with the, the same lead, or was it? did they have a different angle on it? Because you did the film version, didn't you? I did the film version. Actually, what happened was, as you just mentioned, the TV series was a huge hit, as we know. Uh, but it dealt with each of the wives. Each episode was about one of the wives. Uh, what happened was, because it was so successful, Nat Cohen was the producer. He wanted to follow up with the TV, uh, film. Now, they approached me, and uh, my first reaction was, why? I mean, there's no way. It was already done. Uh, I, I, I love that period, by the way. I'm a history freak, and the Tudors absolutely fascinate me. I said, but honestly, what is the purpose of this? All the, you know, we're just going to compete with the TV series and be uh, unfairly judged. Uh, and he said, well, I said, look, I'll do it if you give me one opportunity to try and think this thing through. And one of the writers who'd done one of the one of the episodes was a man called Ian Thorne. Ian was a very good, uh, not only a writer but very good uh, academic, and. I said, can we, I'd like to talk to Ian and just let's sit down before I say yes and think of what we can do to approach this without copying the TV series, apart from the fact that the main character is so indelible and beautifully played by Keith Michelle. 
that obviously he's the key to this, but I want to be able to look at it in a totally new way, knowing that various films in the past have been made about Henry VIII, and I don't want to copy any of them, including that terrible one with Richard Burton, Paul Anne of the Thousand Days, where he even refused to, uh, uh, to tint his beard red. I, I remember talking to him and saying, why didn't you bother to look like he said, what the heck, Warris? Nobody knows who the heck Henry VIII was anyway. <laughs> and uh, and um, my public wouldn't have minded, would have been absolutely appalled at me in a red wig. Oh, for heaven's sake. So anyway, <laughs> now I'm dealing with Keith Michel. And Keith, of course, was brilliant in the TV. So here's the situation. Ian Thorne and I sat down and Ian came up with the most brilliant idea. He said, you know, have we ever thought about what, who he was and what made him who he was? Why did he do some of the things that he did? And I said, that's an interesting point. He started off as this incredibly good-looking, athletic young guy and then ended up as this vast, obese person uh, with a bad leg. So we discussed this and I said, you know, psychologically, apart from the fact that he had God knows how many male children who died with his first wife, mm. uh, there must be something in him that niggled him, apart from that he also married his wife, his uh, brother's widow. We then came up with the idea that this man actually felt himself cursed, not only by God, but by people. And his entire psychological makeup was not to trust anybody. Anybody who crossed his path was not to be trusted, or even those he believed in, given a little leeway. If someone said something against the person, it would immediately get into another category of disbelief. Mm. And uh, so we decided to make this man, to explore his psych psychological background, Therefore, it started off with who and what is betraying me and when. Actually, the parallels are not that too bad today with the present incumbent in the White House, if you think about it. Heads <laughs> are not chopped off, but a lot of people are fired. Yeah. So uh, we decided to do a story about a man who felt constantly on edge and betrayed. And it works. If you look at the film, it is a totally different look at a man who you actually want to like and then you suddenly see that the man is not only vulnerable but very dangerous and we had certain sequences in this where we brought it out um, for instance um, Anne Boleyn who he lusted after forever she was clever enough not to sleep with him I mean he slept with her uh, brother with her sister but not with her until she gave in but here's the thing we researched, uh, found that she actually hid a sixth finger on her left hand. It was a growth more than anything else, but it had a nail to it. And she always wore long sleeves to hide. She also had things that she hid behind a band around her neck, which were, which were sort of warts. So these are marks that we then decided she would obviously hide. And then when the mo moment came when he started to turn against her, all these marks became the marks of a witch. Yes. Another sign. He also, we, ha we put another mark on Catherine Howard on her thigh, which he then discovered when he was trying to caress her. What is that mark? Uh, yes. Then we had a sequence 
where he is told about her infidelity and the whispers have gone around and the man, the boy who was attending him all, all the way through turns out to be her paramour. And the same boy who was, mind, who was binding his wounds, you know, this sore leg. And then when he's told, we had him break down. And you suddenly feel the surge of sadness and pity for this omnipotent ruler. So we were trying to humanize. And then the sequence when, uh, what's her name, turns up from, you know, from uh, Flanders, the Flanders mayor. And we made it into a, a sequence which was comedic. It wasn't the same as Charles Lawton eating a piece of chicken and throwing it over. And, you know, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, but we <laughs> did do the, he, he watches as she's brought in with the ladies-in-waiting carrying in wigs. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we tried to get some humor out of it as well. So for me, it was an achievement because I loved the period. I also had a wonderful cinematographer, I had Peter Sushitsky, who, by the way, went on to be brilliant with the Star Wars and David Cronenberg's cameraman. And he did, I said to him, look, Peter, he was the first one I ever worked with, by the way, uh, on my very first film with Ian McKellen and uh, Sandy Dennis. Uh, wonderful cinematographer and I said would you try without us being self-conscious to get us to look like Holbein paintings and if you look at that film the quality is brilliant the way he uses light in interiors and uh, it has a quality to it which I'm very proud of yeah it's a, it's a very modern way of, of telling a historical story because so often we we yeah. lean on the, the the cliches and like with Richard III, it's very much taken the, the Shakespearean view of, of what he was like. Uh, I, I actually saw a play in the last couple of years written by a friend of mine who sort of was redressing the balance in terms of what, what the real man was really like. Uh, and, yes. and the way the crown is, is really trying to steep itself in what actually happened. So it sounds like you're very ahead of the curve there. I have to, can I say quickly that I think I've been at the head of the curve on various projects, uh, the AIDS one being one. Totally. And, and then I did my film about, called Sixth Happiness about disability. For a brief moment, I saw them doomed, like Prince Jahangir and the court dancer Anarkali. <laughs> Parsi boy, who not only is Parsis who were once high in the ranks of British rule, but have now become minorities in India and fading fast because of intermarriage and various situations. Here is somebody who's not only severely disabled, he's a Parsi, which is another minority, so and he's gay. So, you know, talk about firsts. By the, when we made this film, disability was not fashionable, to, apart from My Left Foot, which uh, Dan, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis did. And there was an actor actually paying, playing disabled, brilliantly, I might add, but playing it. Here was somebody who not only was disabled, is disabled, wrote his own script from his own book and then had to act in it because I couldn't cast it. I could not find anyone to play three different stages of ages from the age of eight to 18. Mm. And he played himself throughout. 
and it's difficult to start with believing that he's actually eight, but by the time this film finishes, it's a triumph on his part, of which I, I would take a little bit of credit, but I think, for me, it's one of the films that I'm most proud of, because I was dealing with every single issue that I think is important in our lives. And made with such authenticity. Yes, and, and made with authenticity and getting the atmosphere of India to... By the way, the sets, the inter, a lot of it is set in the flat, in the Bombay flat, because he can't go out. So we recreated that in a studio in London. It's a wonderful achievement on the part of the production design department, the art department, by a lovely lady called Lynn Whiteread, who was actually related to Rachel Whiteread, uh, the uh, very famous sculptress. But, you know, uh, I'm very proud of Sixth Happiness. Unfortunately, it came out at a time when disability was not focused on and uh, box office not really either. So, you know, it came and went, but I'm proud of it. Um, there we are. These things happen. <laughs> The Copacabana proudly presents Lola Lamar and Tony Starr. I won an Emmy for directing Barry Manilow in his first and only av uh, acting uh, uh, debut uh, with the music behind his um, original classic and uh, well-known song based on his song. Her name was Lola, she was a showgirl With yellow feathers in her hair And a dress cut down her ass She was merengue Barry wrote a lot of original music for it. I actually asked him, I said, why hasn't this been made into albums? Because they're all bestsellers. Mm. And he said, Warris, it's got to do with uh, the recording companies. And they have a hold on what my output is ultimately and they didn't wish to make a situation of this or albums of this. So there are various well unknown tracks Interesting. Of, of Barry's music. Music and passion were always the fashion at the Copa. They fell in love. The first couple of uh, uh, scenes were terrifying, but you know, Annette O'Toole was wonderful. She was great to work with, and Warris Hussein was our director. But I, you know, he, and he was great. But you know, they don't. Uh, what I learned is they don't really pay attention to the actor. They really, really paying attention to the lights, the sound, the you know stuff going overhead, you know. And so you got to really know what you're doing because when they say cut, that's you know unless you know you beg to do it again, uh, they're not going to do it again. Uh, and uh, with this one, you know, doing a musical in one month was crazy. It was crazy to try to do that. You can barely get a regular drama movie done in one month, but to do a musical with all the elements that go into making a musical film, I don't know how he did it. Uh, and Bob Goodwin was producer, and you know, they were, they were, they were wonderful, and they, they did it. And there's a song he sings in the street to his girlfriend, his new girlfriend. He's walking her. And we shot this at the back lot of Warner Brothers 
uh, it was the classic New York set at Warner Brothers, which has been used multiple times in films. And I was there sitting on my camera, which uh, a crane of all things, which went way up and came down. And I'm sitting on this incredible contraption saying, I'm back. I'm in Hollywood, I said. And he was singing in this one amazing number that he sang. And we shot it all, the master, in one take. Then we intercut it with different shots. But the master shot was just brilliant. And that's a song that has never been released called Who Needs to Dream? The whole movie that we made was a sort of tribute to Hollywood musicals. Mm. And uh, this sequence, although it's not in the rain, is very much in the sort of uh, genre of singing in the rain. Who needs a heaven to look forward to for my Now, in the 80s and 90s, you did much work in America. Did you actually live there for a while? Yes. Well, no, what happened was that, um, again, you see, everything has a story behind it. In this particular case, I somebody had seen uh, two very eminent producers uh, had seen uh, my work on the Glittering Prizes. May I ask you, sir, did you personally approve of the Provost's sermon? You've elected to live in a Christian society, Morris. Yes, sir, of course. Stupid of me. I want you to write to Mr. Staunton and apologize. Apologize? I can tell you one thing, and that is that Mr. Staunton does assure me that he would not have said what, in fact, he did say had he known there were any Jews in the chapel. That's very Christian of him, sir. And they literally... It was hugely successful, by the way, in America. Um, on public broadcasting and uh, because of the characters involved Tom Conti by the way made his real television debut in that and became famous on the, all the Jewish princesses in New York wanted to marry him as a result even though Tom's not Jewish but he played uh -huh. the role the producers who saw the glittering prizes uh, asked me without any without knowing me at all to consider a script they were doing and suddenly I got this script sent to me, which had absolutely nothing to do with me at all. But it was about a real-life murder that took place in Philadelphia, no, in New York. It was about a Puerto Rican boy who killed some Irish kids in a playground and was tried as an adult and condemned to death. And it was a very well-known drama. And a woman who... Uh, decided to go to the High Court to save him from being uh, executed. That was the drama. Anyway, this arrived at my place and I thought, well, this is amazing. What do I do? And I said, yes, I'll do it. So I went over as a director for this particular drama. 
and I filmed it and it was the most extraordinary experience in my life because I was used to working with four cameras in a studio in certain circumstances where I as a director would sometimes come down on the floor and start directing the extras in the background with my assistant. In America, not only did I find myself sitting in a chair with my name on it, but when I started interfering with the background and the action of extras, the first assistant director came to me and said, uh, excuse me, Warris, would you mind sitting in your chair? I'm being paid to do the work. <laughs> if you just tell me what you want, I will see to it that it's done. So suddenly I was astonishingly treated in the way that all directors are treated. And this is my first lesson in how to be a person in America, where you give the orders, having made the decisions, and somebody else does it for you. It was a whole hierarchy. So my first experience was extraordinary. And on that production, the person who played the woman who rescued this boy from it being executed was an eminent uh, Broadway actress called Colleen Dewhurst. And she is highly thought of, was highly thought of. She was married to George C. Scott. Anyway, she and I got on incredibly well. I came back to England to do a television drama about India called Staying On, which was going to be done in India with uh, Wendy Hiller. And all things were set with Granada Television until they told me that I had to use their union crews. I looked at the union crews work and I said, I can't do that because they're not good enough for the work in India. I'm going to be away six weeks. I won't be able to check out the results. I need to choose my own crew. They wouldn't allow it. There was a big standoff. I said I wouldn't do it. They said, fine, we're going to cancel the production. This, by the way, was going to be basically the pilot for what turned out in the end to be the jewel and the crown. Right. And um, uh, because I, I, was, I walked off it and they stopped it, uh, it, it, it died a death until it was revived uh, by some, later but with, uh, with a non-union crew and a different director. And Wendy Hiller was replaced by Celia Johns, but I didn't do it. What happened was I was now out of a job. Mm. And out of the blue, I got a message from Colleen Dewhurst. She said, Warris, I have a feeling you're not going to be available, but I have choice of directors. I'm going to do a pilot out on the West Coast in California. She lived in uh, Connecticut in, uh, in, uh, near New York. She said, um, are you available by any chance to direct this pilot? And I said, Colleen, you found me in a very sorry state. I've just fired <laughs> myself of a film. I've got, I'm not going to do anything. I've got no job. She said, well, I'll send you the script, read it, tell me what, but you need to do it in the next week. Mm. This arrived, FedEx. I read it. I said yes. And literally within a week with one suitcase, I was flown out to California. Amazing. And that started my uh, adventures in California. As a significant section of Warris's CV, we wanted to take a brief look at just some of the many films he directed whilst over in America, all featuring a range of strong and diverse subjects and backed up with a galaxy of familiar names. 
1982's Little Gloria, Happy at Last, based on the book by Barbara Goldsmith, tells the true life story of a family's bitter custody battle, launching one of the most notorious court cases of the 20th century. Mrs. Vanderbilt, do you believe that leaving your child for extended periods of time, as has been established in this court, do you believe that that is taking care of your child? I think it's just as much taking care of my child as when Mrs. Whitney is never around. How does that compare with your absences time and again, with a child lying sick? Don't give me that, my child lying sick. Do you remember being told that before this court, the child was asked would she go back to her mother and that she shrank back and tears came out of her eyes and she said, I will not go, I am afraid of my mother. Yes, yes, I remember. What are you trying to do, break my heart? The star cast included Betty Davis, Christopher Plummer, Angela Lansbury and Glynis Johns and the miniseries was nominated for no less than six Emmy Awards. Surviving from 1985 was a harrowing account of the impact of teenage suicide and was nominated for a number of industry awards. The hefty cast featured Ellen Burstyn, Molly Ringwald, Paul Savina, Marsha Mason and River Phoenix. When people reach helplessness. They need an act to help them out of it. In an ideal world, a doctor would intervene or a, a helpful adult. What I want to say to the young people here today and in the community, suicide is not the answer. It is not the way out of pain. All it does is lay that pain on the broken shoulders of the survivors. In 1986's adaptation of Jonathan Kellerman's novel, When the Bow Breaks, a child psychologist, played by Ted Danson, connects a little girl's tale of shadows to real-life murders and a circle of powerful men. This film incidentally won an Edgar Award for Best Television Feature. Hello, Melody. I'm Dr. Delaware. I'm a psychologist. Do you know what that means? Well, I'm the kind of doctor that doesn't give shots. What I do is I talk with kids and we draw sometimes and we play together and I help them if they're feeling sad or angry or or scared. Onassis, the richest man in the world in 1988 was an American Spanish production starring Raul Julia as Aristotle Onassis. My grandchildren may be contacted through their mother's lawyer. They're my kids! I am only conveying my daughter's wishes. Listen! You tell your daughter that if she puts any legal barriers between me and my children, I will smash them down. I used to be afraid of you, Livanos, but not anymore. I am richer than you are, and I have never been this happy in my life. If I want to, I can break your back. Like that. 1989's The Shell Seekers starred Angela Lansbury as Penelope Keeling, a woman re-evaluating her past choices with a desire to reconnect to family. She is looking for her lost dreams. I'm searching for something, my darling. I don't know what it is, but I do know that it isn't here. But to find the happiness she seeks. I'm going to make a journey. I'm going back. I don't know why, but I simply must. She must give up the things she loves. Now, what do you think that I 
for these. What about your family, your grandchildren? How can you stand there and happily give away their inheritance? Angela Lansbury, Sam Wanamaker, and Irene Worth. The Shell Seekers, from the Hallmark Hall of Fame. Forbidden Nights in 1990 starred Melissa Gilbert as teacher Judith Chaprio, who dared to have an affair with a political outcast student, played by Robin Shaw, in 1979 China. Like people everywhere, I was deeply moved as I watched the TV coverage of Chinese students demonstrating for democracy. And in a very personal way, my heart was in Tiananmen Square. Martin Sherman's The Summer House from 1993 starred Joan Plowright, Julie Walters, Jean Moreau, Lena Headley and David Threlfall about the rushed decision to set a date to marry and the subsequent lengths taken to prevent it. But there won't be a wedding, there won't be a wedding. But it's so late, we've left it so late, what can we do? Some things happen only at the last minute. Things don't happen before they happen, don't they? 1997's A Child's Wish stars John Ritter as a distressed man who takes time off work to help look after his cancer-stricken daughter. I don't want to die, but if I have to, I don't want to cry and I don't want to grieve. I just want to have fun and enjoy however much time I have left. Maybe there's no reason even to talk like this. I think there is, Dad. I've been thinking about this for a long time. Missy, we'll do whatever you want. Also noted in this film was a specially recorded scene featuring the US president of that time, Bill Clinton, played by himself. You know, Missy, I've had all kinds of people in this room. I've had prime ministers, presidents, even kings. But I've never been more pleased to receive anyone than you. I'm glad you came. An honor and a privilege to meet you, sir. And finally, 1998's Life of a Party starred Anne-Margaret as Pamela Harriman, the colourful democratic political activist that was noted as much for her private life as her political one, with no less than three marriages to powerful men, including Winston Churchill's son, as well as numerous affairs. Yes, hello. Uh, I would like to speak to Governor Harriman, please. This is Pamela Churchill. Well, could someone possibly tell him that I'm on the line? He knows me. I see. Well then, could you please tell him that I'm at uh, the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, room 723. And I would so love to hear from him. Thank you so very much. And Anne-Margaret was nominated for that performance for a Golden Globe, Emmy and Screen Actors Guild Award. I was going to talk about intimate contacts um, because this is quite a significant production yes. for you personally as well as professionally it was a yeah. very um i guess ahead of its time drama about the aids crisis with claire bloom and daniel massey but your partner died had died around the same time and 
that was something perhaps you felt you couldn't discuss? Well, with... uh, it's very, it's another thing. You see, uh, the AIDS epi- the the AIDS pandemic, which is equivalent to what's going on now, mm. except that it didn't seem to touch everybody because you know it was considered a gay disease. Yeah. Uh, but people were being treated like pariahs, you know. Nurses were wearing masks and putting food under doors in the hospitals until it was proved that you can't catch it. But being gay at the time was absolutely verboten. And I was in the States. By now I was in a very secure relationship. Uh, and I'd been with somebody for nearly 12 years and we were very happy. And then the AIDS epidemic hit. I was in California where the first drama about AIDS was about to happen called An Early Frost. And the producers uh, asked me to be involved. And um, I was going to sign the contract. It was actually a very well-written script about a family, uh, a very upper-middle-class family that finds out that the boy is not only gay, but he's dying of AIDS. A lovely cast. I was going to sign the contract and then the head of the studios at NBC was cha- a drama was changed and the person who came in saw he said show me the list of products that we were going to do which productions are in, about to be done and he looked at this one and he said no wait a minute this is an important show who's involved and he was given the names And he said, no, 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 I want my own choices on this. You're going to have to rethink everybody. So suddenly I was plucked out from being at the front of the queue to being somewhere at the back. And at the end of it, another director was allocated the job. And you can imagine how, I mean, I was devastated because at this time I was, nobody I knew had that disease. My partner certainly didn't. Um, but I was devastated. I came back to England and I heard that Central Television was going to do the first AIDS drama in England, Mm. which turned out to be intimate contact. And I fought. I literally got my agent. I phoned. Ted Childs was head of drama there. I said, please, please, please consider me. I mean, there are a lot of directors being considered, but for me, this is like a sort of... And at that time, it was almost, it's, it seems very odd, my partner fell ill. Mm. So ironically, parallel to my producing this and directing this and preparing it, through the time that it started production, which is a, it was a lengthy one, it took almost three months, my partner not only got diagnosed, but started to fall ill. Mm. And I wasn't able to discuss this with the production company Mm. because it wouldn't have helped. And they allocated somebody to advise me on the disease, which by the way, I was now familiarizing myself in reality. So I was leading a double life. Mm. Um, The even more interesting was that the production designer found a location in an empty, what used to be a mental hospital uh, in Free and Barnet. It was an old Victorian building and he reconstructed the hospital corridors interior for 
what he thought would be interesting. And without consulting me, he felt very proud of himself because he thought he'd found an unusual hospital, which turned out to be based on St. Mary's Paddington. Partly because the nurses there wear, don't wear conventional uniforms, they used to wear greens. And he thought it'd be more interesting, they wore clogs. So it would be a more interesting thing than the cliche look of a hospital. He said, would you like to come and look at this? So I said, yes, of course. I went to look at Frey and Barnett and my heart sank because it was a total replica of the hospital where my other half was being treated. Right. And I was unable to talk about this to anybody. I had to divide myself into the reality of my partner being there in the real St. Mary's and to a fictional time my directing Dan Massey was supposed to get the disease. But in this case, it was about heterosexual AIDS. Now, interestingly, at the time, it was considered a gay disease. If it hadn't been for Alma Cullen, who wrote the script, she was indignant about the way all these men used to mock and say, oh, it's another queer disease. She thought to herself, what would happen if this hit heterosexual society? Yeah. I'm going to explore the possibility of that. So in this drama, it's about a married man who contracts the illness not through gay relationship but through a prostitute in New York, a high-class high, high call girl. And that was her premise at the time when everybody said, oh, come on, that's, that's unreal, that wouldn't happen. And even we've even got a scene in it where a doctor has to explain how you contract AIDS. It's, it's a, I mean, that scene now is almost embarrassing watching because it's about everything we all know about. But I was responsible for having to do all this and come off set every day and visit my other half in hospital while he declined. And ironically, from the start of production to the end, his journey through this was exactly the same as the journey on this film. He died just before the show was transmitted. And Dan Massey, because I didn't talk to anybody about this, Dan Massey came to me and said, why didn't you tell us? Uh, this was at a screening at BAFTA. We had a very big screening. And I said, Dan, what would have been the point? It wouldn't, it wouldn't put an extra burden on you. You had to do the, what you were being asked to do according to the script. It was for me to be able to do it and be as impartial as possible. And by the way, I might add that while we were shooting, uh, the rumor got out that one of the papers were going to publish a headline, gay director's uh, lover dying while he directs AIDS drama. Oh, God. My producer called me and said, is this true? And I said, look, Chris, I said, please, for God's sake, fight this. Don't allow it to happen. Tell them I'll sue them. I mean, that was a vain way of saying it, in vain, to try and even think of thwarting something like this. But for some reason, they actually did not do it. And it didn't, because in those days, they were constantly finding headlines in, play, in the newspapers like News of the World. Uh, yeah. You know, one famous uh, person after another was being targeted for being, you know, ill or having AIDS. And I was going to be in line for that. But Touchwood, they did not do it, so I escaped. Oh, with a relief. But the idea of my other half passing away, at that same time, it took a huge amount out of me. It took a huge chunk out of me, actually. Sure. Uh, it took me a long time to recover. I, I mean, you know, you say you didn't want to burden the actors, but you, you ended up 
burdening yourself more because you didn't get a chance to offload to to really anybody. No, I I, I couldn't talk to anybody actually. Uh, it, interesting enough, the people who really helped me so much were were my closest friends, and one of them whom I can say with pride is is Francesca Annis. She was a dear friend of mine, and she was the one who dealt with me. She took me away, uh, uh, took me uh, under her wing. Uh, after uh, you know, I had to get through this whole situation, um, and uh, yeah, it was a tough call. But I had a handful of people. Actually, what was fascinating, and I will bring this up, my wonderful mother, who, you know, we never talked about anything, uh, because however intelligent and liberal she was, she held in her fear of her one and only son being infected. But she never brought it up. She loved my partner Ian, uh, and when he died, she was in India at the time, and she phoned me. She said, "Has something happened?" And I said, "Yes, Ian passed away." And she said, "Oh my God, I felt something. My heart stood still." And she said, "I've lost a son." Gosh. For her to acknowledge without speaking to me about what was happening. Uh, she was bereft, but anyway, her only concern was that I wouldn't be a, a, a victim of this illness, and I, <clears throat> you know, thank God I wasn't. I was uh, okay, but for her to go through this as an Indian mother, if you think about this, at a time when we were all outcasts. It was a, a remarkable thing for her to be able to be able and, and my sister, by the way, my sister was so supportive because right in the middle of Ian's illness, I got a phone call from America by Ted, Ted Danson. He found me. I don't know how he found me, probably through my agent. And he said, look, I want you to come over and direct me in the drama I'm doing, I'm producing. And I said, oh. I said, Mr. Dancy, he said, don't call me Mr. Dancy, call me Ted. I said, Ted, look, I'm thrilled that you should think of me, but I'm not sure whether I can actually make it over there. Uh, because I said, would you let me think about this and then get back to you? He said, yes, but I need to know fairly soon. Ian overheard the conversation. He said, what was that call about? I said, it's a job offer. He said, well, you're going to do it, aren't you? I said, well, I haven't said yes. He said, no, no, the point is you're going to do it. And I said, but what about you? He said, you're not going to help me by staying here knowing that you could have had a job. So I want, this was at a time when he was still declining. You know, he was, he was needing help. Mm. So I said, well, let me think about it. I called my sister in India and I said, this is what's happened and I don't know what to do. She took the next flight out to come and take care of Ian. Oh, wow. Amazing. While I went to America, I directed Ted in his drama. It was very successful. The moment I finished directing it, I was supposed to stay and edit. I said, Ted, do you mind if I give my editor all the notes, but I need to fly back to England because my other half, and I said to Ted, because by now everybody in America was aware, I said, my other half is ill. And Ted looked at me and said, you mean with what I'm thinking it is? And I said, yes. He said, Waris, get on that plane right now. Bless him, yeah. 
if you're okay with it, come back. If not, we will consult. Mm-hmm. He was the one to back me up. Yeah. So not everybody in America was paranoid. They were very helpful, certainly in the show business world. I flew back, and guess what? I arrive at the airport, and who's waiting for me at the airport is Ian. I said, <laughs> what the heck are you doing? He said, I'm feeling better, and I come to meet you. Oh. So I've got a wonderful memory of all this. And a wonderful yeah. family as well, I've got to say. Just, oh, wonderful. Just... Well, look, I'm eternally grateful to both my mother and sister. My father, alas, was no longer with us by this time. Sure. Uh, so, But, you know, I am very fortunate in my family. Mm. Uh, I'm very proud of them. Quite right, yeah. I just was going to talk about um, now and the fact that you, you know, you have various projects you're still very much involved in. Um, COVID's obviously yes. put the mockers on that a little bit, but hopefully, when we emerge from this uh, this bizarre, rather dreadful year, um, what are your plans? Interestingly enough, and I will talk about them briefly, but they're both based out of the states. One of them is actually about uh, here, set in, in, in Europe. I won't go into too much detail about it. It is historical drama okay. where we're actually questioning a story that everyone seems to know everything about. And what we're trying to say is, wait a minute, is the story that we all know about the truth? Yeah. Uh, it's set in the post, uh, post, I'll simply add to it, uh, in post-revolutionary Russia. Okay. Uh, that's one. It's it, it's a series, a six-parter, hopefully. Uh, the one that I've dealt with over in America is with a very well-known writer, Australian friend of mine. Uh, we came up with the idea of the Catholic Church, and it's about the reversal, not of young people being corrupted, which is what the theme is, most of the themes about the Catholic Church and the corruption therein is about adults corrupting young people. Our story is the opposite. It's about a young man, a 16-year-old young man, actually corrupting a priest. Uh-huh. Uh, well, corrupting is the wrong word. Sorry to say that. I'm using the legal terms. In, in, <laughs> he, is, he actually has an affair with an older man, a man in his 20s, who's, um, uh, you know, reluctant to be involved to start with, but then does get involved. And what happens is once it's discovered, the person who's the victim of all this is the older man, because it's against the law. Yes. And the boy is a minor. And the, the boy is responsible for what he did, for which he has to then deal with his own actions. What about um, your memoir, as it, as it were? Would you consider writing all this up at some point? Because there's obviously so many you know stories what? we haven't touched on. You know, the, I, people have said this to me. You know, I'm not one of these people who can sit at a computer and tap away. <laughs> I'm mm. much better at talking like I'm talking to you. Sure. But obviously, I'd have to talk in a much more... But I don't want it to be a, a, a memoir that starts off, I was born in India in such and such a year and then follow it through a la David Copperfield. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, it, it's all fragmented. I, I would like to talk about it, it, a memory and, uh, and things that emerge. And then I can marry my personal life with my work life and somehow 
mesh the two together. But, you know, my biggest handicap in this is, A, my inability to sit down and write. And secondly, there's so many people writing their memoirs. And I every time I tell, oh, someone else has written something, is it worthy of me? Is it worthy of the public? Do they, would they be interested? Oh, of course they would. I mean, for goodness sake, we've, we've, we've talked for close to two hours now. There is so much rich detail and stories, and there must be so many stories you haven't told me. Yeah, we would be interested. We would love to uh, read it. The thing is, I don't want it only based on Doctor Who, <laughs> you know. Oh, no, definitely not. Uh, I was going to call my memoirs whenever I wrote them called War is Who. <laughs> but I, th I think it's clear that you have a, a glittering, um, award-winning career in TV and film directing. Doctor Who, look, I'm a massive Doctor Who fan, so of course I'm interested in all that, but I'm fascinated by everything you've uh, told me today. And also it's very clear well, that you don't seem to have any plans to slow down in the foreseeable future then. <laughs> Uh, to be honest with you, I, you know, it might be something that is looking for... Look, during this terrible time uh, where we're all uncertain about what's going to happen, uh, this is something to look forward to. Uh, it makes me focus on my two projects that I've mentioned. Sure. However, I've, I'm not by the sky. I know that there are all sorts of considerations to be taken into account. For instance... Uh, ageism. Is anybody going to believe in me as a director anymore? They're, oh my God, how old are you? Uh, oh, um, you know, <laughs> the, 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 I, I've got all my marbles. I, I do sometimes stutter and hesitate as I've done during this interview. I don't think you've done at all. Um, I've met you, Warris, and uh, you look decades younger than um, the age that says on your Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't really believe it when I meet you. You just have such a zest and vitality and a twinkle, and uh, you look great, mate. And <laughs> it's clear that, you know, you should um, go as long as you want to. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I, I appreciate your saying so, but am I going to convince those people sitting behind desks in studios and producers who think that they're... The only qualified person is the latest uh, commercials director or whatever. I know I'm competing in a very competitive medium, but the fact is I still got my marbles and I've still got <laughs> my ability to make sense of scripts. So I don't see any reason. After all, I am contemporary almost of people like Martin Scorsese. And if he can do it, why can't I? European directors like Ingmar Bergman carried on right through to the time they dropped dead. You know, so. <laughs> and it would be their loss if they uh, didn't use you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Warris Hussein, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you.